Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. My new book, Expat Secrets, is doing fantastic on Amazon right now. The book paints a clear picture on how to internationalize your life. We get into how to use the offshore markets to protect your assets, minimize your taxes, and grab yourself a second passport. We talk about the best places to live, the best places to hold your wealth, and the best places to run your business from. At the end of this book, you'll have a much clearer picture of how things fit together and what steps you need to take in your own life to diversify your business, wealth, and life overseas. You can grab a copy on Amazon today by searching Expat Secrets or going to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. You're going to love this conversation. Let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is originally from Toronto, Canada. In 2007, she sold her financial planning practice, got rid of all of her belongings in order to free herself up for the adventure of a lifetime, and has been traveling the world full-time since then. She is an expert on travel, personal finance, and lifestyle design. She has authored multiple books about international travel, including Tales of Trains, where she traveled 42,000 kilometers through 11 countries over 44 days. Please welcome to the show, Nora Dunn. Nora, how are you doing? I'm great, Miguel. Uh, How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much for being a guest today. Well, thank you for having me. Nora, why don't you take a couple minutes and kind of talk us through your backstory, maybe how you ended up selling your practice and what you've been doing for the last uh, dozen or so years traveling around the world. I know that that's a very simple question to ask, but... <laughs> yeah, well, a very so- simple question, but of course, how do you cover off uh, over a decade of experience? I, it even amazes me now that I got into the double digits of full-time travel. Um, it, it all started ultimately when I was running a financial planning practice in Toronto, Canada. I was what I would call myself a medium-sized fish in a big pond in that I was, uh, I had a very successful practice and I was gaining some notoriety for my approach to financial planning, which is much less about picking investments and gaining returns and was much more about helping people design the lives and lifestyles of their dreams. Because I've always been a big proponent of uh, a big pile of money isn't going to do you a fat lot of good unless you know how it's going to help you live your life. 
So I took that more holistic, if you will, approach to financial planning with all of my clients. And one day I realized I'd kind of forgotten myself in the process. And myself, uh, what I had forgotten was uh, my lifelong dream, really. And it was, a, it was a dream that took hold when I was all of nine years old. I did a very specific moment where I realized what I really wanted to do is I wanted to crack the code of countries and cultures around the world. I wanted to hack my way in to various countries and cultures. I wanted to break bread around dinner tables. I wanted to volunteer. I wanted to learn what local life was like. And I wanted to understand what motivates people, what concerns people, what what general conversations are like, uh, and, and how people live their lives around the world. And thus far, I've been unable to achieve that through standard vacations. So fast forward, I throw in a little bit of burnout, a couple of universal signs telling me that I should probably be making some sort of life change. And eventually, I got the inspiration and ultimately the courage to sell everything I own to travel on a completely open-ended itinerary. So, okay. So talk me through, you you sell off the practice and you buy a one-way ticket. Where did you land to start off with? Where where was the, the number one place that you wanted to go that you wanted to start the journey in? So the, the, I learned almost immediately uh, to allow my destinations to choose me. So I, I didn't actually really know where I wanted to go first. I didn't know, even know what my travels would look like or even how long they would last. So I, I somewhat arbitrarily chose Costa Rica as a place to go, and I was actually going to take an outward bound course that would allow me to be an outdoor education instructor because I thought at the time that might be a transferable skill that I could then take around the world with me that would give me a potential income-earning possibility. But something kept preventing me from actually clicking buy on those plane tickets. And and I I didn't know what it was, but for some reason there is a little inner voice saying, don't do it, don't do it, not yet. Uh, and very shortly thereafter, uh, my partner at the time, uh, who's originally from Alberta, got a call from his family, and his brother was getting married and asked him to be the best man. So uh, instead of going south, we went west. Uh, we took the train across Canada uh, and then went all the way to Vancouver Island and then doubled back to uh, Edmonton, where we spent seven months. Uh, from there, another opportunity uh, came to volunteer and trade for accommodation in Hawaii. And then from there, another a sponsored gig in Australia via Asia. And, and then just basically year over year, I discovered that I didn't necessarily need to choose my destinations. Instead, I just had to keep my eyes and ears open for opportunities that uh, would call me to various countries and places within countries to experience it from the inside out. Brilliant. So when I was looking through your website, theprofessionalhobo.com, did you start this website immediately when you started traveling or did this come slightly afterwards? I started a blog immediately when I started traveling. It wasn't a self-hosted domain a la theprofessionalhobo.com. And let's, you know, let's go back to 2006 in our minds. Blogs were really, they were almost indefinable. They were glorified travel journals, basically. I could barely define a blog beyond that. So when I started my, my blog, which eventually evolved into a website, it was really just a way for me to uh, have a creative outlet for me to uh, write about my adventures and for family and friends to tune in uh, as they wished. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, I accidentally started an international NGO in Thailand. <laughs> I'm sure there's an entire story to that one. 
I know, just throwing little teasers in there. <laughs> um, suddenly, I had an audience that was more than you know my mom and my friends. Uh, so that was when I started to uh, take it a little more seriously, and I got my own domain, which is theprofessionalhomo.com. Uh, and even then, it was still 2009. It was still very much a wild west. So uh, it wasn't until really an industry kind of built up around me and took me with it as one of the first travel bloggers out there uh, that I realized that there was monetization potential with it. Uh, for me, making money was, uh, was my efforts uh, in terms of earning an income were uh, centered around freelance writing. Uh, in the initial years, and it continues to be a, a significant form of my income. Beautiful. So I noticed when I was looking through your website, you have a whole bunch of guides. And the one that really struck me was, and I'm going to try to remember the exact name, uh, Creative Guide to Free or Cheap Accommodation. Can we talk about this one a little bit? Because I thought it was just such a fascinating uh, topic for today. Absolutely. So the name of the, the there's a, a, two incantations of this. I have an article on my website, which is, as you mentioned, the Creative Guide to Free and Cheap Accommodation. Um, but one of the, the meat and bones of this uh, parlays into a book that I wrote, which is How to Get Free Accommodation Around the World. Uh, and this is what people get most excited about, because over the last 12 years of traveling full time, I've managed to save over $100,000 in accommodation expenses and simultaneously, I've been able to achieve uh, a, a level of cultural integration that I would never have been able to achieve by uh, staying in, in hotels or hostels or other forms of traditional accommodation around the world. So it's not only saved me a pile of money, but it also helped me define my travel lifestyle unto itself. Well, and I would imagine that when you're doing things like this, and, and we can get into the different techniques afterwards, but I imagine with a lot of these, you would have a very different experience than someone who is just traveling through a youth hostel or even a hotel or a, um, a resort or anything like that. This is going to give you a much different look at the, at the destination that you're traveling through. Absolutely. And this plays right into what my whole motivation for travel to begin with, which was to, to, to try to live around the world rather than to, to merely pass through it. Uh, and uh, I would say, on the whole, I've been very successful in that mission. Uh, and it has been uh, because of the, the forms of accommodation that I've been able to take advantage of. So when we say free accommodation, the, the number one that pops to my mind is couch surfing. When I lived in Australia for three years, I must have hosted 100 people on my couch. Um, I lived with my brother and it was like every week there was some guy staying with us or, you know, I think we even had people come over for a month or stuff like that. Did you do a lot of couch surfing or was it other sites or talk me through this a little bit? So couch surfing definitely is probably one of the most well-known ways to get free accommodation around the world. And ironically, it's probably the thing that I did the least. Actually, that's the second least thing that I did. The home exchanges is the thing I did the least because I, of course, didn't have a home to exchange. <laughs> Funny how but, that one works. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's strange. Uh, couch surfing is, is, is a fabulous way if you're traveling, uh, especially if you're traveling quickly, you're able to take advantage of, uh, of a host like yourself when you were in Australia who's interested in a cultural exchange with a traveler, uh, and happy to, to host someone in your home. Uh, the, the reason I didn't do a lot of it is, uh, when travel is a full-time lifestyle, uh, it, Couch surfing uh, or hospitality exchanges, as I like to call it, because couch surfing is the name of one of many websites that offer this kind of service. Um, 
hospitality exchanges are, are very limited time offers. Uh, I like to, my MO when I'm staying with other people uh, is that house guests are like fresh produce. They go off after a few days. So for me to be finding a new place to stay or a new host to stay with every few days is not only actually a lot of work, uh, but it also is not very conducive to the lifestyle of working on the road, the lifestyle of a digital nomad or a location-independent worker. Uh, because one of the biggest misconceptions about someone who works as they travel is that I'm consistently on vacation, which I am not. I do have uh, <laughs> a legitimate job that requires time, uh, and that's not often what uh, couch-surfing hosts are interested in hosting. They'd like to host a traveler with whom that they can have that cultural exchange. Well, that was definitely my experience. I think that we did it so much because I had just came off of, uh, well, I had lived in New Zealand the year previous, which was a lot of travel, but still working. But the 18 months previous to that, I did hitchhiking all through Central and South America. Um, yeah, 18 months on the road in 10, 20 different countries, something like that, moving every day. So I was still so interested in in talking travel and being around that atmosphere, but I had a full time job and was saving up money again and working. But I, so I brought the traveler to me, opposed to me going and and visiting new places. I, I brought the experience to me. Um, but yeah, I, I I totally understand the difference between being the digital nomad and having a full time job or someone who is on vacation. Um, and it's it's interesting because it's uh, you've experienced both sides of that equation, uh, and I think that you were absolutely brilliant once you were settled in Australia for a while. You were absolutely brilliant to bring the travelers to you because you can vicariously travel the world through the people who stayed on your couch. Uh, so that's a to for anyone who's not able to travel right away, uh, I highly suggest uh, becoming a, a a couch surfing or a hospitality exchange host because it is really a fabulous way of meeting people from all around the world and also setting up potential cultural exchanges for when you travel later. Well, that's the thing. I think it's so important to understand that one of the biggest draws, well, at least for me, for traveling is learning. Like, I am just such a voracious learner. I just, anything that I can learn. So if I had someone from Serbia staying at my house, then I could learn about their country and their cities and their culture and their food. And, you know, maybe they would make dinner and, you know, and then that day I would have Serbian food. And then next week it would be something else. And I could learn about, I, I still have a friend today um, from Switzerland and I've gone over to visit him. I visited his parents. And that was because he stayed on my couch when I lived in Australia. And this is the true meaning of a cultural exchange. And that's that's the beauty of it. I mean, you can probably now say, from all the hosting that you've done, that you have friends all over the world. And some you obviously would stay in touch with more than others, uh, but there's often a reciprocal offer uh, to, to stay with them uh, when you're in their neck of the woods. Uh, and it's uh, I, I've done the same thing. I mean, I've stayed on so many, uh, you know, stayed with so many amazing people from around the world that uh, I, I really, I, I, I cherish the opportunity to be able to get back in a similar way. So you said that couchsurfing is one of the ones that you did the least of. So... Talk to me about the the opportunities that you had, which you which you gravitated more towards then. So the first opportunity that came my way, or the first form of free accommodation that I, I learned about beyond couch surfing, uh, was volunteering in trade for free accommodation. It's also known as work exchange. Uh, and it, it came to me oddly. There was a, there was a when I was selling everything I owned 
the woman who came to buy my couch uh, asked me uh, if I would be doing any woofing. And I said, what? She said, woofing. <laughs> I said, are you, are you, is, there, is there something wrong? Are you feeling okay? She said, no, no, woofing. It's an acronym for worldwide work on organic farms. You can get free accommodation and stage for, you know, doing whatever needs to be done. And I'd never heard of it before, but it sounded fascinating. Uh, and I immediately hopped online and did a little bit of research and learned that she just discovered an entire world of different forms of uh, work exchange that you can do, which was a relief to me because my thumbs are not green. The idea of uh, living and working on an organic farm did not exactly excite me. But what I did find were all kinds of different ways of getting free accommodation uh, around the world. So I subscribed to a few of these sites. Uh, I think probably one of the first ones that I subscribe to, which I, I still adore, is called the Caretaker Gazette. Uh, and I like it. It's very kind of, it's not a conventional. Most people who do work exchange go onto websites like HelpX, WorkAway. Here I am on the Caretaker uh, Gazette uh, because it's like a, it's a quarterly newsletter that comes out that just, just randomly there's opportunities all around the world. So it was perfect for me because, like I said earlier, I like my destinations to choose me instead of the other way around. So if, you, if you're wanting to do woofing, you get onto the woofing website, you have to choose your country and then find the opportunity in that country. And to me, that was too restrictive because I want to go everywhere. I just want the opportunity to call me somewhere. Uh, so the first opportunity that called me while I was sitting in Alberta was a chance to, to uh, work on a permaculture property. I'm not even sure I know what a permaculture... What is, what is permaculture, Nora? So if agriculture is taking a piece of land and planting things in rows and, and almost kind of artificially creating an environment for something to grow, permaculture is the art of creating a, or managing a natural habitat for everything. So basically, the permaculture property that I was on in Hawaii was just, it was just some dude who had a bunch of land, and it, it looked like a jungle. So I, I'm walking through this jungle thinking, I don't know where the fruit trees are, but apparently there's fruit trees everywhere. And they're not, in, they're not organized, they're not in lines. Instead, they grow the way they would naturally. And all he does is just maintains the natural environment uh, without being too hands-on, uh, and then reaps the benefits thereof. So my job, working in trade for accommodation in Hawaii, I had my own ferro-cement yurt, uh, 150 yards from the ocean. Uh, it was a giant volcanic cliff, and boom, there was the ocean with my TV. And I had to milk the goats. So for one hour a day, I would milk goats. Oh, and in the afternoon, I would feed the chickens, which lived all over the property. And I had my yurt for four months in Hawaii. And, uh, and then, of course, I moved to the other side of the island, the big island of Hawaii where I was, and I volunteered in a hostel, which was a complete change of pace, painting murals in exchange for my accommodation. I did some, some work in hostels when I was in my early, early 20s. I remember there was eight of us in a six-bedroom dorm room. We had no money because they weren't paying us. It was just for, I think we did vacuuming and made beds for three hours, and that gave us free accommodation. Somehow, every night we went out drinking. I don't know where we got the money from. And we were like super, super, super dirt poor. But every day I fell asleep with a giant smile on my face. I was so happy. I was just like, I had nothing, but I was just so happy. Like, I, I had everything. It was amazing. Well, it was when I was actually volunteering in this hostel that I learned the benefit of, of, of being stationary and having travelers come to you. So for me, that was a great cultural exchange, and I met people all over the world who came to the hostel. 
Um, but it, it was, yeah, like you say, it's usually the, the, the style and quality of accommodation is a little something to be desired. Uh, it, it tends to be a very, uh, a very rough and ready kind of way of getting free accommodation. And I loved the experience, but it wasn't something that I could do long term. Um, especially, and I learned this kind of over the years, and by a couple of years later, I, I actually called a halt to my volunteer uh, in trade for free accommodation, my work exchange life, because I found it was too difficult to manage uh, the hours of working in exchange for accommodation plus the hours required to develop and maintain my online business, which became more and more onerous as the years came on, went by. So I think I think if you're traveling the world long term and you want to have these really interesting cultural experiences and you want to save a pile of money, uh, I, I really highly recommend working in exchange or volunteering in exchange for accommodation. It's I mean I've done so many amazing things around the world. I led eco treks on llamas in Australia. I uh, cooked and uh, did marketing plans for a, a retreat and content center in New Zealand. I, you know, painted murals in Hawaii. I designed marketing plans in, uh, I don't even know where I was at the time. But anyway, I've done all kinds of weird and wonderful things around the world in exchange for free accommodation and in places where I wouldn't normally have been able to visit, uh, you know, some expensive countries like Hawaii, Australia, and New Zealand. Not entirely cheap places to visit, but for me it was free. So I'm surprised because when I, when I look at your background and I think, okay, she had her own financial planning um, business, I would have assumed that you would have done a lot of that type of work, like maybe uh, business development work when you were with these types of um, small business owners, um, maybe helping them with the books or helping them. Well, you did mention marketing a little bit, but I would have thought that there was so many skills that you would be able to add, which I quote unquote more white collar opposed to uh, milking the goats well, part of my aim to travel was really to experience all aspects of life. So I wasn't necessarily trying to, uh, I didn't feel a need to hang on to uh, the financial experience that I have. And it's also worth noting that um, how to manage the books, as an example, uh, varies dramatically by country. So, you know, I'm familiar with Canadian tax and financial regulations, but that doesn't necessarily translate to other parts of the world. So while I did take on some office type positions doing, you know, designing and, and implementing marketing plans and promotional stuff and business kinds of things, there are two reasons why I didn't focus on it necessarily. One of which is uh, when you're looking for a work exchange position, it's not likely you're going to find something like that because in most cases, people are reading the business owners are going to do it themselves, but they're going to hire local people to do that. That's not something they would be looking for a volunteer traveler to do. Uh, so in some ways, you know, travelers kind of get a little pigeonholed um, in terms of what people think they're capable of. Uh, but in other ways, I also wanted to just, I wanted to get a, a broad range of experiences. Uh, and for me, I didn't mind those experiences be, taking the form of uh, landscaping or, you know, eco tracks or painting pretty pictures or uh, chopping wood uh, and, and, and experiencing the world uh, in a different way. So for me, the, the collection of experiences that I, I got from working in exchange for accommodation uh, was, was more rewarding even than uh, them sticking me in an office and having me do their books. Well, it's, it's so interesting because people, 
would normally just go with their strengths. So obviously, you know, financial planning and the books and things like that we're talking about, that would have been a strength. And milking goats or doing these types of things would probably, I'm imagining, put you out of your comfort zone. But I think that's that's another one of the amazing things about travel because the more you are out of your comfort zone, the more you grow, the more you are able to handle new and interesting situations and 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 grow as a human being. I think that if you only do things that you're comfortable with, you're going to end up being very narrow and narrow-minded. Bingo. The, the, the whole experience of travel unto itself is one of stepping outside of your comfort zone. Then add to it making travel a full-time lifestyle, which in 2006 and seven wasn't really a thing. I mean, there were some people doing it, but there's very few. Uh, I mean, now there's a whole movement behind it, uh, largely because, uh, you know, the, there's more and more digital nomads. There's more and more ways to earn a living uh, in a location-independent fashion. But when I was doing it, it was not common. Uh, so, uh, and having the experience, you know, getting the chance to to have a wide range of experiences. So stepping out of the comfort zone, not only by uh, traveling to a, an unfamiliar place, but then by taking on unfamiliar tasks in that unfamiliar place, for me, was a way of, of again, just diving deep into the local way of life uh, and experiencing the world through these these gigs that I had. I just want to take a quick break here. After I finished recording the conversation with Richard Mayberry, he made a very special offer to all my amazing listeners here at the Expat Money Show. He offered us a 40% off discount on his one-year subscription to Early Warning Report, his financial newsletter that includes 10 timely issues. If you live in the USA, you get it delivered physically to your door and electronically. And if you live overseas like me, he's going to send it to you electronically in a PDF. Every month when my report comes in, I print it out, sit on my balcony with an espresso, and read it all in one sitting. I rely on Early Warning Report to understand how things fit together from that 40,000-foot view, how geopolitics, economics, and law are affecting my money today. Richard Mayberry's writing in Early Warning Report is the closest thing you are going to find to seeing into the future. If you want to learn more about this special opportunity and claim 40% off the cover price of Early Warning Report today, just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. That's EWR for Early Warning Report. Well, I think this is so fascinating because I have been on the road for 20 years now, but I've never been a digital nomad. I've been an expat. So I land in one place like here in the UAE. I've been here for eight years. I have an apartment and a car and my wife and my family and everything is here. And then we use this as like the hub and spoke model and we travel out um, from this place. And I built my business here and, and this is my home. And, and we're probably going to be moving this year to a new country, but that will be my home for one or two or five or 10 years or whatever. But actually being on the road and making money online, I just think it's so exciting. Like I just, I've never done that type of travel. So it's so interesting for me to hear your stories, Nora. Well, thank you. And it, it is a, it's a whole industry now. I read the statistic that in a couple of years, uh, 40% of the North American workforce will have the uh, ability to be location independent. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all going to become digital nomads and take off and travel the world full time, but it does mean they have much more freedom of how and when and where they work. 
uh, and what their lifestyles can look like. Imagine saving two hours, three hours of commuting time every day. I mean, that, that right there improves many people's quality of life. Uh, I will say that my, the, the bane of my full-time travel existence has consistently been work-life balance. Uh, it is the, the sheer act of traveling takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy and a lot of time. Uh, as an example, I, I spent, uh, just fairly recently, I, I spent about, I don't know, 10 months uh, bouncing around almost as many countries in Asia. And, you know, it will be a matter of, okay, so I'm choosing a place. So I'm going to choose the country that I'm going to go to, and then I'm going to look for flights and then look for accommodation and find a way, you know, find a find a city and then find a neighborhood in that city and then find a way to get a place in that city and what things I want to do in that city before I even show up. And then I show up to that city, and then I now have to familiarize myself with the place, find out where the grocery store is, find a place to stay long term. Da, 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 da. Yeah, and you're doing it all in a language that you don't speak and a currency that you don't know and understand. Exactly. Now imagine arriving in that place. You just just start to get the basic idea of of you know how to exist there, and then you've got to find the next place. So I know digital nomads, and this is a, I, I call it a, maybe not a rookie mistake, but it's a rookie move, and I've done it, where you think that a month is a long time somewhere, and you, you're going to change locations every month. And it's a monumental amount of work, uh, and it takes a huge amount of time. And if you're also working concurrent to that, uh, it, it's a, you know, it's a recipe for burnout. So, you know, it's funny that you mentioned being an expat, you know, a, a serial expat, I might even say. Uh, because that also happened to me. Over the 12 years, I would establish home bases, and it would be a place that I could, you know, unpack and, and relax for a little while, but then, like you say, I would use it as a, as a spoke for other travels. It would be my base for other travels. So in 12 years of, of full-time travel, I had home bases in Australia for a year and a half, New Zealand for nine months, Grenada in the Caribbean for two years, Peru for two years, Ecuador for nine months. Those would probably be the places that I stayed the longest. And then other places I would stay anywhere from a few weeks to a few months, depending on what brought me there. Uh, but I think it's very necessary and it's an extremely important thing to, to point out to any aspiring digital nomads that traveling slowly is not only a nice way to experience the world in terms of, of of getting a, a rhythm and understanding the local culture, but eventually it becomes a necessity. Oh, I agree. And I remember back to my first trips when I was in my teenage years and I was backpacking through Europe, and it was like, okay, two days in London, four days in Paris, one day in Brussels. Like It was like bang, bang, Whoa. bang, 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 bang. And then... Yeah, I'm just tired listening to you just describe <laughs> this. <laughs> you know, and that was like five months or something like that. Well, the second trip, the third trip, it just became slower and slower and slower until now, then it became like a year, three years, a year. It's like if I was going to go to a place, it, like the minimum would be two months or something like that. Because you just, you're right, like it is just so tiring. It is so mentally exhausting. And you, then you find that favorite cafe that does your coffee exactly the way you do it or you want it. And, you know, like for me, I'm a celiac, so I can't eat wheat. So I'd find somewhere that has really nice food that can do food for me without making me sick. It's like, I want to just keep coming back to the same place over and over again. Well, not only that, but then they get to know you and then you get to know them and you feel a, you know, that one of the booms for a traveler is the ability to, to feel 
accepted and to feel like you've made inroads with a local, you know, like one of the, one of the kind of like, uh, a victory, you know, uh, to shoot for as a traveler is being invited to a local wedding. You know, that's like, ooh, you know, I'm in now. Uh, and so, but those are the things that you can only achieve if you stay somewhere for a while. So once you do find that cafe, it's nice to enjoy it for a while. I agree with you completely. So we talked a little bit about couch surfing and then we talked about, uh, Work exchange, I was about to say woofing, but you said you didn't really do a lot of the woofing. You used some of the other sites, right? That's correct. I never once actually uh, subscribed to a woofing service. I've been on their website multiple times. I've looked at it, but I've never signed up for them either. Um, I've never done that type of of work before. Um, So that's quite interesting. So are there any other big sites or big styles of uh, getting free accommodation that you have come across? Absolutely. And this next one is what I, I gravitated to once I realized that I'd kind of traded one rat race for another with the work exchange in that I was, you know, working, either working in trade for accommodation or working on my online business 60, 70 hours a week, uh, at the expense of actually traveling. I realized I needed to make a change. And that was when I discovered house setting. And uh, uh, this is becoming increasingly popular among lifestyle travelers, be they digital nomads, be they uh, retirees. I've met many retired uh, people and couples who make full-time lifestyles out of house-sitting around the world. And it's brilliant because not only is it free accommodation, but it gives you a chance to, to basically to enjoy the comforts of home, just somebody else's home. And while they're off traveling or away for, for anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to possibly even a few years, it's your job as a house sitter to take care of the place, uh, water the plants, take care of the pets, uh, if there are pets, which there often are, uh, and uh, be a security presence for the house. So be, live in the place. Uh, it serves... So is that the main reason is to... To thwart someone breaking into the place? Is that why people do this? Or like, what would be the main reason someone would want someone else in their home? The main reason people want house sitters would be for pets. Pets, plants, mail, uh, and, and ultimately to, uh, just a, if not, uh, the, the security against break-ins, which in some parts of the world is a more prevalent risk than others, but more so just the security of knowing your place is okay. So recently I went away for five months and I left my place empty. Uh, but I made sure I had someone coming in to, to check the mail every once in a while and to check up on the place. Uh, and I will say that I, I, I did find myself a little bit like, Ooh, is my place okay? Like, Ooh, what's happening? You know, did, did a leak happen and suddenly my place is flooded and I don't know it. Nobody else does either. Or was there, you know, there, there were things that went through my mind about potential disasters that could be happening in my empty place and no one's able to take care of it. So if I had a house sitter, I would have had someone to uh, alert me immediately if there was something that I needed to know about and they would be able to take care of it in my absence. So, so, okay. So walk me through the process because I've never done this before at all. So walk me through the process of how you set something up like this, how this all works, how you find the people or how the people find you. Um, yeah, I'm really interested. I want to understand this. So like many of the other forms of, of free accommodation, uh, there is, there's a whole kind of online industry, if you will, around house sitting. There's a variety of websites that you can uh, log on to and subscribe to. 
Uh, normally, you, you have the ability to peruse the listings for free, but if you want to interact with homeowners, you have to pay a fee. That fee pays for itself in one night of free accommodation, so it's negligible. But uh, what happens is on these websites, so there's a variety of them, uh, to name a few, trusted house sitters, house carers, mind my house, nomad or, uh, are just a few of, of many websites that allow you, allow homeowners who need house sitters to connect with house sitters who want homeowners. And uh, so as a house sitter, uh, I would uh, create a profile on this website. Uh, I would make the profile as personable as possible. So to give a homeowner a sense of security, I'd have testimonials on them from other homeowners that I've house sat for. Uh, some sites actually require identity checks or background checks. Um, when I was house sitting, it was still that that wasn't a, a common requirement. Uh, but I would have a good because I have a website where I fairly intensely personally discuss various aspects of my life and lifestyle. Yeah, I've seen some of yours with dating on <laughs> some of your dating stuff online. I was chuckling when I was reading those, Nora. It's pretty easy for someone to log onto my website and get a pretty good sense of of, of who I am, and then also that also creates trust. Uh, but you don't have to have a website where you talk about your dating life in order to, to gain credibility with a homeowner. So you create your profile, and then you take a look at house-sitting listings that are available. Now, a house-sitting job will vary wildly in terms of the duties and responsibilities included. So uh, I'll start, you know, the easiest house-sitting gig I ever did was one in Switzerland. I was uh, taking care of a house in Zurich and their Alpine cottage uh, it, for three months. Uh, they had no pets. Uh, all I had to do was answer the mail and keep the orchids alive. Uh, they gave me unmitigated use of their car. They said, be wherever you want. You know, spend as much time as you want in the Zurich house or the, the Alpine cottage as you like. Come and go as you please. It's all good. Uh, and so it was just the most glorious, you know, house-sitting gig I ever did because I could come and go as I pleased and I had no immediate responsibilities. Other gigs will require you to be on site, either so you can walk the dogs three times a day or whatever that dog is used to, uh, or so, again, you, you know, sometimes some places more so than others uh, require somebody on site as a security presence. Uh, and it depends on the country and the and the, the place in the country, uh, or even the homeowner and how their proclivities towards uh, home security. Uh, I mean, some have you know feed the cat. Some of them are there's multiple dogs and gardens to tend to and 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 whatnot. Uh, others yet have farm animals you know, where it's it's really a job. Uh, there are even some house sitting gigs where they run uh, hotels and B and Bs and whatnot and. That's, you know, in the house sitting community, that's actually a, a little bit uh, of a bone of contention because these are jobs that people should be, homeowners should be hiring for. And they're taking, taking advantage of the house sitting community, which is a, you know, a community of international travelers who are offering their services in exchange for a free place to stay. So the reason I, I talk about this wide range of gigs out there is because it's important for you as a potential house sitter to define <laughs> what it is you want to experience. So I've had house sitting gigs where my ability to travel around that country was uh, significantly lowered because I couldn't leave the property for more than a few hours at a time. 
So what is it that you want to achieve? You know, does, is that cool? Do you want to just chill out? And I mean, there was a, when I originally went to Grenada, it was to house it in a, in a, um, it was a, a resort style property that was in the off season. So, uh, I really just needed to be there in order to, uh, you know, they didn't, there were rarely if ever any guests. Um, but I basically had to be the eyes and ears of the property for the manager because they still had gardeners and, 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 and local managers and, and caretakers and whatnot that needed management. Uh, so what that meant was I was really, I was bound to the property. Uh, and in that it was not really, it was not looked kindly upon for me to leave for more than a few hours at a time. So my expect, <laughs> granted, it's a beautiful beachside resort style property. So if what you want is just to chill out in a beautiful beachside resort style property and be there and be company for the dog, that might be a great gig. But if what you want is to incredibly experience the Caribbean and maybe go to other islands or even take long trips around the island, maybe that wouldn't be the case. So did you ever, and this is a completely selfish question just for myself, did you ever see any other families doing this? Have you ever come across like families who are house-sitting other people's places? Absolutely. Uh, and I would even suggest that uh, depending on the, on the gig, homeowners will uh, take more kindly or they'll be more likely to, uh, to take couples and families as house-sitters than a single person. And it's not always the case. It depends. Again, it, it varies as wildly as, as the homeowners and house sitters out there do. Uh, but there, there does tend to be, especially in these gigs that require a presence at home more so than not. Uh, you know, to, for a solo traveler to show up, it, it sometimes is a, you know, a bit of a, an isolating experience if you're never to leave the property or rarely to leave the property. Whereas if it's a couple, uh, you know, or a couple with kids, then it's, um, there's a perceived sense of stability. Uh, in, and especially if it's a family home to begin with and, and that family is off traveling, there's really no reason why they wouldn't take another family in to do it. So since it's a selfish question, I would say, uh, look into house sitting because you can get gigs for, uh, that allow you to live somewhere for many months. Uh, and that would be your opportunity to test out a new destination and decide if it's your next place to live as a serial Well, because we've been talking a lot this year, me and my family, about getting a second home, maybe in Thailand or something like that, and spending several months a year there. And we just keep thinking about, oh, we'll just rent out our place on Airbnb and then Airbnb somewhere else. So why is it that people would not want to do something like Airbnb and actually make some money at this and they would just go with um, house-sitting instead? I, well, I suppose because of the, the, the pets and things like that. But any other reasons you could think of? Absolutely. There's, uh, you know, you may not want to Airbnb out your place because uh, perhaps your place isn't marketable from an Airbnb perspective. Uh, also, when people are paying for accommodation, there's a greater chance that they're going to trash the place. You don't know who they are. They've just got logged onto a website and, and reserved your place. You have no ability to vet that person. Uh, as long as they put their credit card down, they're staying in your home. Uh, and of course, if you do, if you're leaving behind, uh, you know, pets, plants, uh, anything that needs some attention, uh, an Airbnb customer is under no responsibility or obligation to take care of your place in that fashion. So the question is, do you want your home to be a hotel? Or do you want your home to remain a home? 
uh, and uh, and also too, in order to qualify to rent out your place as an Airbnb property, uh, I believe there are certain things that you have to do. Uh, also, you'll need to uh, hire or have somebody on the ground while you're gone to uh, maintain, clean the place in between uh, people who come through. Uh, it's work. So it's you know if your if your place is in a location that would be desirable for travelers and you are prepared to assume the responsibilities of having uh, tenants uh, or hotel guests basically stay in your property, then you could definitely Airbnb it out, and there is income uh, potential there. Uh, on the flip side, uh, why would you want to you know let's think about you going to Thailand? So you could house sit, or you could rent an Airbnb yourself. Uh, now there's a few, you, there's a few things to keep in mind. One of which is, um, what's the value of the accommodation that you're staying in? And I bring this up because especially when it comes to volunteering and trade for accommodation, but also with house sitting, if the accommodation is cheap to begin with, do you really want to now, what's the value of your time in the, in whatever requirements are, are made of you to get that place for free? So if you have to work five hours a day in trade for your accommodation in a country where you could get a, a decent accommodation for 20 or $30 a day anyway, is that worth it five hours of your time? Or would you rather just rent a place somewhere where you have no obligations, you can come and go as you please? So it's really up to you and your travel style and what you want to experience when you're going to Thailand. I will also say this uh, about Airbnb in particular. Uh, I went to Thailand uh, not so long ago, and I looked at, I was going to Chiang Mai, it's the first place that I went uh, when I was in Thailand. I'd been there 10 years prior, so it was a, a fun chance to return. And I was looking at Airbnb, and I'm looking at the cost of these places on Airbnb, and $1,200, $1,400 a month, U.S., as a minimum. I'm like, this doesn't feel like it's in keeping with what I know the cost of accommodation in Thailand to be. So I emailed a couple of colleagues of mine that spend lots of time in Chiang Mai, and I said, "What's what gives? Why are these places so expensive? They said, oh, no, 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 don't rent from Airbnb. Show up. Just get a hotel for your first few nights. Walk around the neighborhood that you want to rent in. You're going to find a place. And sure enough, I did. I, I uh, rented a hotel, got a hotel room on arrival for my first three nights, and in half a day of walking around, uh, I found a fully kitted out, fully furnished condo, gym, pool, the whole deal for $250 a month. So what was that? Just like answering an ad or, or seeing a phone number on the side of a building? Or how did that work? Yep. I walked around the, uh, the, there was a series of condos in the area that I wanted to go to. I looked and sometimes there's signs saying for rent and whatnot. But the way I managed it is I literally just walked into the lobbies of condos and said, do you have anything for rent? Uh, and that in Chiang Mai in particular, it's a, it's a big digital nomad hub. So there are a lot of people who have condos that specifically are rented out on a furnished short-term basis. So you can rent them for uh, usually a minimum of a month. Sometimes it's a, a longer than that. Uh, and they're, they're ready. They're ready to take uh, medium and long-term travelers in. Uh, and there are actually many places in Southeast Asia in general that are set up well for this style of travel. Uh, I will also say that that's not necessarily possible everywhere you go. Uh, but 
you know, there's, it's a balance. Everything is a balance. So, you know, you can research Airbnb in advance and book the place and rest assured that as soon as you land, you've got a place to stay because you're going to pay for that. Or you can, you know, take a risk and show up and see if you can find anything on the ground, uh, and, and likely save some money, but you're carrying with you that stress that maybe there isn't going to be something available. So it depends a lot on the place that you're going, what sort of market there is there, and also what, what you can see that might be. Well, in my travels, I've seen that it always works out. Like, like I've never been homeless for a night and had to sleep on the streets. You'll always find something. I always prefer, you know, first night, second night, and maybe booked into somewhere, and the rest of the time just wing it. If you need, you can always extend at that hotel or, or find somewhere else. I've not done a lot of the, the short-term leases, like, say, a fully furnished apartment or anything like that, but certainly with the pensions and, and different types of accommodation options, you'll always find something on the road. You will, uh, and but I will say to you know again it depends on the on the place and the time of year. So I have a friend who went to Oaxaca in Mexico, and she just booked the first couple of nights, assuming that she would be able to find uh, a place to to rent uh, on a on a longer term basis uh, when she was there. Not only did she find that because of the season, it was close to high season when she went, there wasn't any long term places, but she also found that she couldn't extend her hotel because it was also booked. So she wasn't sleeping on the streets, but she ended up having to pay a lot more than she wanted to and even was prepared to pay in order to stay. So again, it's that balancing act, uh, and it takes a little bit of research before you go uh, you know, to know whether or not you, you have the potential to get stuck in that situation. Now, one of the ways that you can do that research is there tends to be, a, especially if it's an expat-friendly destination, there's almost guaranteed to be at least one, if not many, Facebook groups dedicated to expats in that uh, country, city, or even neighborhood. So if you search for the expat groups, you may find uh, and join them. Then you can listen to the conversations and you can ask questions about whether or not it would be, a, a, you know, what people would suggest uh, with regards to your plan of action. Online. Oh, absolutely. You can literally go on Facebook, type in expat, and then whatever city or country it is, and you will see at least one group in sometimes multiple groups. Like if I type in uh, expat Dubai, there's probably a dozen or two dozen different groups um, that are all based on just Dubai and UAE types of things. Um, and I'm I'm on groups from all over the world because I travel so much. And it is a great way to get uh, like hands-on uh, information that is current, you know. Sometimes when you try to Google something, you might end up reading an article from 10 years ago about the best places to stay or the best places to eat or the best places to go, and it can be a little bit dated. Exactly, exactly. And the, and the Facebook groups are, it's, it's a free way of doing some research and really getting current on-the-ground information. Talk to me about any of the other tips or tricks or strategies that you found in your, your travels of, of getting these free accommodations or, or hugely discounted places to stay. So there were five forms of free accommodation in all. We've covered four. Uh, we mentioned there in, in passing home exchanges, which is a topic unto itself, but <laughs> we don't really have time to get into that. Uh, there's hospitality exchanges, also known as couch surfing. There's work exchange, also known as woofing. There's house sitting, which we've just covered. And then the fifth and final form of free accommodation that I discovered and was able to take advantage of is living on boats. 
I actually lived on five boats spanning three countries in the Caribbean for three months straight, not a night on land. And it was an amazing experience. So that's another way that travelers can get. And, and of course, if you're living on a boat, too, that is actively traveling between uh, islands, countries, or even continents, uh, you've now got free passage as well. Now, I will immediately throw in a caveat there by using the word free. Uh, if a boat owner is listening to this, they may start cringing when I say free because boats are, are very expensive to operate. And it's usually expected that you will uh, contribute a proportional share of the operational expenses, uh, which could be water, food, fuel, uh, depending. It all depends on the boat. Uh, so don't expect to get free passage from A to B if uh, you don't know how to sail, first of all. Uh, <laughs> now, having said that, the irony is actually not only did I not know how to sail when I got onto my first boat, but I had a phobia of the ocean, <laughs> kind of why I did it. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it really, again, it, it, the, the, the variety of boat owners and sailors out there uh, are as it's as varied as there are countries in the world. So, uh, you know, you can always find a good fit. The first boat that I was on was actually moored in St. Martin, so we didn't really sail around, which is why I didn't really know how to sail. And the owner was developing a, a, a video business, a video production business, and I happened to have expertise. Uh, I used to work in the television industry, so uh, I was able to help him develop his business as a, as a way of, of, you know, contributing uh, to life on the boat. So uh, from there, I realized and learned that the nautical community is incredibly small, and everybody knows everybody else. So I was able to bounce from boat to boat uh, and have different experiences and, you know, learn to sail, or at least learn to be of some use on a sailboat, um, by virtue of, of making these inroads with, with various sailors uh, and, and having these amazing experiences on different boats. Uh, and in one case, I actually earned a little bit of money as well because the boat owner was uh, also running a charter. So uh, I, I took on a job, if you will, a very informal job, um, helping to uh, feed and take care of the charter guests, which really was a glorified way of just hanging out with them and making sure that, you know, and cooking the meals, which I was cool with anyway because I like cooking. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, not only did I get a, a free cabin on the boat, but then, you know, at the end of the week, he handed me a bunch of money, uh, which was nice. Uh, so the, there are plenty of, and that is a very informal kind of uh, income earning possibility. There are many more ways to earn money um, living and working on boats. Uh, there's a whole industry around that. And it can be anything from a small sailboat, uh, you know, like a little charter boat like I was on, to a, a mega yacht that has a, a full staff uh, all the time taking care of whoever happens to be staying on the mega yacht at the time, to working on cruise ships. So there's an entire industry about living on the water, should that be something that, uh, that, that you're interested in. Uh, and I also write about that and how to get these opportunities in my book, how to get free accommodation. So the, okay, so I understand the working on the boat as that as a, as a job, but what would be the main reason that someone would want to, to have you on the boat? Was this similar to house sitting? They didn't want something to happen to the boat if they were going on land or if they were going back, uh, they had to take a flight somewhere? Or why was it that you were you were on the boat? So it's twofold. Uh, the amount of work to maintain a boat 
uh, is astronomical. So uh, sometimes, and especially if you're sailing from one place to the next, uh, you need to work in shifts and rotations. Uh, so deck hands are required. Uh, maybe you need to be up for the night watch or part of the watch for a long sail. Uh, and to just, uh, <laughs> all hands on deck is an expression that exists for a reason. Uh, there's always something to do. So that's one of the reasons why uh, a boat owner would have somebody on their boat uh, and give them a free cabin. Uh, the other reason is it can be a lonely life. So there's a lot of people out there uh, who sell up their lives on land uh, to chase the dream of living on a boat, uh, usually a sailboat. And then they get out there and they realize that it can be a solitary existence. And uh, so sometimes it's nice to have the company. Uh, now, as a solo female traveler, I've traveled solo and with people uh, throughout the, the dozen years. Uh, but the time that I was on boats, I was traveling as a solo female traveler. So I will obviously um, say that it's important to make sure that the, the, the captain you're about to, you know, whose boat you're about to get on, uh, doesn't have intentions that are going to compromise uh, your situation. So any free accommodation gig requires due diligence and due diligence on both parties' parts because, um, you know, in a boat, it's, it's, a, it's a more dramatic experience of, you know, if you find yourself on a boat and it's a bad, even if there's nothing dangerous, even if you just butt heads, you're stuck in a terribly small place to, uh, with these people and there's no way off, uh, especially if you're, you're sailing a, a long passage. Uh, so it's really important to make sure that you're going to get along with the person. Uh, likewise, with uh, house sitting, uh, you know, basically, uh, as a house sitter, I'm taking a risk because I'm buying a plane ticket to go somewhere on the basis that I'm going to be staying in a stranger's house, which, you know, again, as a solo female traveler, I got to make sure that that's going to be a good gig for me. Um, and likewise, the homeowner is taking a risk in having a complete stranger stay in their house and trusting that stranger to, to, to take care of their home as if it were their own. So in order for that trust to be established, you've got to, you know, do a Skype call, do, you know, extensive interviews, ask questions, make sure you know everything about the gig before you take it. Uh, because, uh, and I've turned down lots of gigs, uh, because I knew or I felt like it wasn't going to be a good fit. Uh, and it's very important for both parties to feel comfortable with the arrangement before you say yes. This has been so much interesting information. Definitely the homestaying, uh, looking after other people's home definitely speaks to me. Um, it's interesting that there's so many different paths and I would imagine that so many of them have like a really different feel. So it really depends on, on you, what, what speaks to you or to my listeners um, for them to try this stuff out themselves? I agree wholeheartedly. Just like all things travel, there are a million different ways to do it. And there's a million different places to go and a million different ways to experience those countries. And this is just one way of experiencing the world, well, five actually, ways of experiencing the world uh, that all fit under one category. Uh, but there's there's something out there for everybody. Uh, whether it's a, a place or a way of experience in the country. And the beautiful thing about travel is there are no rules. So make the rules up as you go along and make sure that the experience feeds your soul. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Nora, if people want to get more information about this, if they want to read your blog, maybe if they want to pick up your book, where can we send them? So come to 
theprofessionalhobo.com and you can learn more about me. You can find my book in the sidebar uh, and you can also reach out to me if you have any questions. I love it. And I definitely encourage my listeners to go check out uh, all the articles. You have something like, what, 1,000 plus articles on your blog, Nora? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant, though. I love how you do like a really personal blog. Like You make my blog feel um, so much facts and figures. I want to put a lot of my own my own personality into mine now after reading yours. I feel like I really know you after reading so many of your articles. Well, thank you. I try to strike a balance between providing practical information, which I do in things like my travel lifestyle guides, which are all about the actual mechanics and specifics of how to do things like manage your money and travel the world effectively. Uh, but that my heart lies in the, in the editorials that I provide and, and the, the insights that I'm able to share with people about my experiences of, you know, satisfying my own life dream of hacking into local cultures around the world. No, you do a very good job. I really enjoy it. Anyways, Nora, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Mikhail. Have a great day. You are not facing global uncertainty alone. There is help. Arm yourself with the foresight that only early warning report, EWR, can provide. Since 1991, Richard Mayberry, editor of Early Warning Report, has guided readers in simple, fast-reading, direct language toward ways to protect their wealth against political, military, and financial chaos governments are causing around the world. The performance of your investments is determined mostly by the performance of the economy, and the performance of the economy is determined by law and politics. To know how your investments will behave, you must know how governments will behave. Often citing historical parallels, Early Warning Report doesn't just explain what is happening to you. It suggests ways to protect your savings. It suggests ways to protect your savings and earn profits. We challenge you to find any publication with a better track record. Between 1989 and 2007, geopolitics and the military events were dominant, offering huge profits. From 2007 to 2017, economics was the focus. Now Mr. Mayberry forecasts that geopolitics and military events have returned to center stage. These revelations and insights are available only in Early Warning Report. Take advantage of this time-limited offer. Order today. Join the exclusive group of well-informed readers who are highly skeptical of the analysis they receive from the mainstream media. Claim your 40% off of the cover price of Early Warning Report. Just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. 
From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.